Hi, everybody. This is Gustavo, the host of the Enable Disabled podcast. I am super excited to have Jill Denise Griffin on the show today. She is a career strategist and executive coach. She has worked with a twos list of famous brands from Coca-Cola to Microsoft. She has a phenomenal podcast, and we are here to talk about during her career, she had in the corporate world, she had a traumatic brain injury, and she has some really interesting experiences about how that, how she adapted to corporate America and also how that helped her branch out into her own business today. We're going to focus on some topics such as micro quitting, setting the correct goals for people and getting into her background. A quick description of myself. I'm a middle-aged Latin American. I am in a, my conference room right now with beige walls and I have some photos in the background of some work that I've done in theaters, in home theaters. I'm wearing a blue polo shirt and my hair is dark brown combed to the front. So Jill, welcome to the show. Can you describe uh, yourself a little bit, please? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the warm welcoming. Yes, I am Jill Griffin. I also, I guess, am middle-aged, although I'd like to say otherwise. <laughs> I am uh, honey brown blondish shoulder-length hair. I have on a red plaid uh, shirt with a, a white puffer vest because I'm in New York City and it's cold. I'm in a room that is a light green in color and I have a beautiful horse behind me, a painting of a horse behind me, which is very significant, which we might talk about today as to why it's so significant to me as a backdrop. And I'm really glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you. So let's dive right in. I'm really curious to hear if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood, what were some of the things that you remember that you were drawn to, interested in? What were you like as a kid? That is a fun question. So I am the middle child, and I would say that I'm pretty textbook middle child. Hey, pay attention to me. I'm here. Uh, and I'm the uh, only female between two brothers. I had a insatiable curiosity and creativity where I would often spend hours either in books or in like coloring or art or making my own arts and crafts. Probably why years later I worked for Martha Stewart, the domestic diva of all that she has created. I also would get lost a lot in what I would say fantasy around, but not probably fantasy the way most people think about it, fantasy around dollhouses. So I would spend a lot of time in setting up the interior decorating and what would the actual doll's house look like and how should the bedroom be decorated and having just that level of intricacy of like wallpaper and you know, setting the dining table and just, again, a level of creativity, but a playful fantasy too. And that was a, a lot of how I would spend my time. I was very active and athletic playing in various sports like basketball and um, volleyball. I also played soccer and loved being outdoors. And for a long time, I thought I wanted to be a veterinarian as a child. And I just have a huge love um, for animals and wanting to do that. But the creativity side of things ended up winning out and went into more creative work as I continued to work through school. And then eventually after college and the jobs and the roles that I've taken. Interesting. Were you always a good student? Did you have a good relationship with school? 
I was a good student. I went to Catholic school through most of my life and they don't really have much tolerance for bad students, one would say. <laughs> so by default, I was a good student. No, I really enjoyed school. I definitely had to work hard, meaning I would get distracted easily, maybe a little bit of ADHD. So studying, but got very good grades, but I put the time in. Whereas I feel like my older brother didn't really study and got the same impact in his grade. That's just the way it works out. But for me, it was about paying attention and being a good student. But yeah, no, I was a top, I was a top student as far as my, both in high school. And then of course in college, I was in the top percent of, and that was important to me to achieve academically. It's just something that I value personally. It's the, just clearly as your career, which you'll, we'll get into more, but you seem like a very driven, focused human being. So that was, did your parents help influence that? Or did you think that was your way of standing out of getting the attention? Or was it something that you just curiosity to play a part in it where you just wanted to learn these things and see what was out there? I think it's the, la the latter. I just had this insatiable curiosity. Obviously my parents encouraged me to do well in school and academics was very important, but I didn't have uh, what I felt to be undue pressure from my parents. Also, I was doing well, so there wasn't maybe necessarily need to put pressure on me. No, I just, I always was asking why. And I always wanted to know the question behind the question. I eventually went into media and I remember as a kid staring at the television and wanting to understand how the picture got in there. Like, how do the people get in there until I understood more later, but just always having that just insatiable curiosity to understand and to know, which has fed my discovery, my exploration and the various roles that I've done in my life is, is always just being in this quest for understanding and knowledge. And so what did you study in college? So in undergrad, I studied business and communication arts. I wanted to originally go into television, either being in broadcast news or in radio. I did have a radio show in college, which was super fun. And it was a morning show at, on the university campus, reporting mostly news and whatever contemporary hits radio was at the time. I left university and went, I got a job at Atlantic Records. So staying within sort of entertainment and media and the work in at the university level definitely helped with understanding the production side of things where we actually learned how to run production studios and camera and things like that. I was on the marketing side of Atlantic Records. So I wasn't actually in the product and production, but still having an understanding of how those things work, the time commitment, the investment, both in resources and people needed definitely helped me be a better marketer because I understood sort of time constraints and how to work within them. Interesting. So what was marketing something that you fell into with Atlantic Records and once you got a taste for it, you wanted to learn more or was it something that you were already interested in previously? I wouldn't say that I was interested in marketing. I have an insatiable curiosity about people and understanding people, which has fed various careers in which I'm doing. So for the most of my professional years, I was what was called a strategist of really understanding the voice of the consumer at the table in the discussion between the brand, the product the brand was selling and the actual consumer. So I didn't know, again, when I was younger, that was called marketing, but that idea of understanding strategy and understanding the consumer and then 
you're young and who doesn't want to, maybe not who, I should say for myself being young, I was like, that sounds amazing going to work for a record label and being in New York City. And my roommate, who was a good friend of mine, also worked for a competing record label. So we would laugh because we were two young women in our 20s who on any given night would be at some of the top clubs and venues in New York City working the door or helping our various bosses scout from A&R standpoint, because they needed young people to do the jobs that the older people wanted to go to bed and didn't want to stay up late for. <laughs> so we would often come home from work, maybe get home by seven, do a quick change, and then have to be at, you know, CBGB or a club in New York City that was maybe having a live venue or a live band, Roseland. These clubs don't exist anymore. I'm totally aging myself. And get there by 10 or 11 and then beg off by 2 a.m. because we had to be back at the desk at 8.30. But that's what you can do when you're 22 and 23 years old. <laughs> so when you were in these venues, did you take, what did you take away from, besides the fun and the experience and the, the glamour of being there, right? Like in the scene in New York, like were you, did you start observing people and they learning, okay, this is how this is why this band is taking off. This is what they're doing. This is why they're connecting with these people. What were some of the... It's amazing. It's an amazing question. Yeah. Again, I don't know at that young age that I had the vocabulary or the language to really understand that they were building a brand presence, what in corporate we would call an executive presence, but how they were really commanding the stage. Because you could have a band that is ridiculously musically talented but they didn't have what they would say is like that factor, the, the star factor or the rock star factor. And then it would be, you'd have to put a lot of promotional dollars behind them to get them promoted because they didn't have the it factor, even if their sound was amazing. And then you could have, and we know this today, there are people who are just so magnetic that you want to be around and their music's okay. But it's finding the two sides of that, that was so interesting. And again, it's, I think where it was such a natural organic discovery where my roommate, her name was Laura and I would talk the whole cab ride home and be like, but did you see this? And did you see that? And I'm just not, we were not taken by the celebrity. We were respectful and knew that we were in a position that not many people get to be in. We were more enamored with the business of this is how it works. This is, wow, this is an entire business. We just hear music on the radio when people were predominantly listening to um, terrestrial radio, where there's an entire business behind making of the music, which was so neat. And of course, we would go out and read every book on every Jerry Wexler rhythm and blues, like all the books that were around the start, the start of that era. I'm an Erdogan. That's the entire Atlantic record era. The, the, the two brothers that basically coined the jazz music and brought that as a popular thing to New York City. So to be in the environment and just get to look on the peripheral of what was happening was a pretty cool time. That's amazing. And I think I'm curious what, like how much of you see it in Hollywood. I, I don't know. I think it feels more manufactured today than it did back then, where you get into these traps of we we only want this type of actor right now because these are the people that are selling the tickets. These are the movies that are gonna that are gonna make a profit. These are the artists that we have to promote. And it feels like a lot of good musical talent 
slips through the cracks? And is it really just stage presence or are they copying and pasting what they already found works and trying to ride that wave out as much as possible, right? How much of how much opportunities are they missing out on because their field of vision starts to narrow once something works? Yeah, that's a really insightful question. So I can't answer for today. This was, I was doing this in the early 90s. I'm sure there was a formula. I, I don't know that I could articulate that for you. I'm pretty sure we can all guess based on what's making it today that there's also a formula. I didn't stay in the music industry that long for for two reasons. One, there was this thing called digital music that started. And then therefore, a lot of the music then was moving. I wasn't in the era where we were on LP. I was in the era where we were on CD, Indeed. right? But, but still, it was pre-iTunes. It was pre-digitization of music. So that era really shifted things and also shifted marketing and promotion budgets accordingly. So that was one of the beginning of the ends. And also, I think it's for me personally, I think it's a, a lifestyle that is so fun, but I think it has a very short half-life where you just get really tired and you're in these places and you're going out, but you're actually working. So yeah, you're having fun, don't get me wrong, but you're still working. So while you're, as I would always say, your civilian friends are going out and having fun, you're going out and you're probably having fun, but you're still working. <laughs> so at a certain point, as much as I am a huge music person and love the industry, it just was the best for me to start thinking about, cool, how else could I recreate what it is that I love about the excitement and the moment? For me, it's always about the moment it all comes together and how do I recreate that excitement? So it just naturally ended up going into advertising, which may not seem so natural, but basically the people that we were working with from Atlantic Records standpoint to help us with some of our promotion and advertising, I just went to the other side and then started working on that side of the house. A different company, but that side of the house, yeah. And what the, can you talk? A, so, what was the next step after Atlantic Records? So, after Atlantic Records, I went to work for what is now one of the large. There's four or five large advertising agency holding companies. That each holding company has a couple of anywhere from a hundred, a fifty thousand to a couple hundred thousand employees, depending on the size of these holding companies. And I went to work for one of them in pre-digital. So there still was no necessarily digital marketing yet. And myself and a colleague were working in TV advertising, meaning doing the media and understanding the strategic way to place media based on what it is that you needed, anything from infomercials all the way to regular commercial product. And we had a client who asked if we knew how to do digital. And myself and my colleague were like, maybe I'm 25 at this point. Myself and my colleague are like, uh-huh, we know how to do digital. And they're like, great. Were you interested in pitching our digital portion of our business? And we said, sure. And we stayed in the office all weekend. We taught ourselves digital. We pitched. We told the CEO and they were like, all right, because we didn't really have these skills. that We had this capability of the agency, the division we were in. So we stayed in all weekend. We pitched the business and won the business and then almost vomited because we have to service the business. And it was the fat first account was Carnation Baby Formula. And we came up with, with a partner, we created a baby name database, which subsequently went on to be purchased by Jay and be a large, I don't know what the URL is today, but it'd be 
the, the additional iterations of it, you could type in your name and see various meanings in various languages, various translations of various ways of spelling it. And we did this all on behalf of Carnation Baby Formula. It sounds funny today, but that's where we started. And like overnight, we became these little digital darlings that kind of figured it out and super scrappy and got it done. It's amazing. What the, so clearly, even at a young age, you were super resourceful. Yeah. And you had scrappy this, and resourceful. Scrappy and resourceful, <laughs> which is they I like cheap and cheerful, but <laughs> that, that's impressive though. So what did where did you how did you make this connection between, like you said, this moment where everything comes together? Where did you find that in advertising? Was it making that successful advertisement, making that successful moment where the brand was connecting with its users, with its people? Um, a little of all of that. So the the moment too where strategically the plan makes sense even before it goes live. So how are we using all different mediums to tell the story that we want to tell? And how are we making sure that we're shaping the creative story and the storytelling within the right medium? Because again, this doesn't happen as much today, but back then you would create a commercial and then you would just drop it into paid media time. Whereas we were taking a situation and saying, wait, if we're going to be in programming like that, afternoon programming, then we should have a message that kind of caters to that audience versus if we're going to have evening programming, then we should have a different kind of message that kind of targets. And, and again, that was very new and not being done. And now it's pretty commonly done where you want to make sure that your message is hitting in the right audience. And But again, back then, myself and my colleagues, I think were some of the few in the industry who were really thinking about how the medium and the message come together to tell about a story. And then as I continued to progress and get promoted throughout my career, I spent the last quick math, I would say the last five to seven years working in corporate leading strategy of creative storytelling within the agency. So finding a way in which you're leveraging the media dollars at that you're going to be given to Disney anyway, to be across all of their networks from Hulu to ESPN to ABC and having a conversation with them about how to use the media dollars that you're buying time creatively to get yourself access to talent so that you can actually have talent in your commercials or have a live read from talent so that you're doing it in a different way that really stops and gaps the attention. Think about something like, I didn't personally do this, but one of my bosses did this. If you think about America's Next Top Model, which was a very popular program at the time, they wove in CoverGirl, which was a perfect fit into that show. So how do you create that level where they're doing shoots each week and dressing and getting ready and putting their makeup on and they're using CoverGirl makeup? So again, that's something that is very commonly done today, but I consistently had this history of being at the forefront or being in places where I was getting to work for some of the best brains in creating the environment to, you know, tell a story in a different way and really be on the cutting edge. Without knowing ahead of time, and this is going to, I think this has a good transition as well into your consulting business now as a strategist. How did you know when the story felt right? How did you know that you had a better chance to succeed in that process? Because it's a guess, right? You don't know until you put it out there and you see what happens. I think for me, there's an internal knowing before that happens that I just know. 
I do credit a lot of it to being at this point, like a 35-year meditator every day. And I think when you're constantly connecting in and cleaning the slate and connecting into what's possible, both from cleaning your mind out and then coming out of meditation and having a very fresh slate and getting into, I'm just going to call it a level of intuition that I don't know that I can teach people how to do, but I'm so glad that I know how to do it. It's, It's just, it's. I think I'm a born strategist where being super curious, understanding, wanting to understand people, wanting to understand the environment in which they're in and then putting connections together to say, how about, what about, could we try what, you know, and constantly looking over the horizon, where are we going to go next? Where should we take this? What's possible? And it's just the way my brain spins, you know, to raise the sights of everyone is to raise the sights of possibility of what, what we can do together. And so you have a moment at some point in time where you say, this feels, this matches, this feels correct. Like we, whether or not you execute on it is another matter. So right. we don't know if it's going to, how successful it's going to be, but internally, you, you know, when it's right. Yeah. There's an internal knowing that I think others could probably identify depending on what their craft is, that there's a moment of eternal, eternal knowing. I would imagine various artists in different ways can think about if we're going back to the music analogy, when they lay the track and they pull it all together before it's actually out there. Yeah, that was it. We just nailed that. That was the right thing. I think there's just an internal knowing that when you, when they talk about mastery and practicing your craft. And I, I think when you think about the amount of hours in advertising, 70, 80 hour week, you get to mastery pretty fast <laughs> if we're talking about the 10,000 hours. So I think there's just an internal knowing that comes again, you have to be in the right place. You have to be asking the right questions. You need a little bit of luck of being exposed to the right people and the right campaigns and the right brands who are willing to take risk. But all of that comes together and you get to start to learn patterns and knowing. Were you able to maintain those long hours because you were so interested in the work and you were driven to just keep going? Or what did it come to a point where, you know, that amount of effort every week, like for me, I, in my twenties and in my thirties, it was a lot easier to put in those hours than it is today. Yeah. I think what happened was the brain injury made the decision for me. So I was putting in those hours. I didn't always mind. There were some days that you're tired and cranky and you mind, but I think what agencies do really is they get a lot of like-minded And by like-minded, I don't mean the lack of diversity of thought, complete diversity of thought. We don't agree, but in that we are all insatiably curious and we all are striving for collaboration to create or be in an environment that's really innovative. That's what I mean. Again, outside of that, everyone's bringing their own backpack to the race and it, it takes on lots of different forms. But I think what agencies and marketing companies and media companies do really well is at least then, is you get a group of people that are hired, give or take, around the same time, and you gel, and you're in it together. And I can feel like you're on the set of an Aaron Sorkin screenplay, where there's just like this harmony that's happening, and it's fun, and it's intellectual wit, and it's snarky, and sometimes you take the piss out of each other, but you're all working toward the same common goal, and you're having some fun, and some some joys and some, holy moly, we just pulled that off. And that was amazing. And that sort of that group pride of everybody working towards a common goal, I think keeps you working 
even when you're like, I'm so tired, I need to go home and you just do it. You just do it together. But for me, having the, the head injury stopped a lot of that. I still did it, but the impact of what it was doing to me to keep up that pace, it started to become more severe. Can you talk a little bit about the head injury and what that experience was like? And I'm interested to, I've spoken to people who have on the show who've had have vestibular conditions where they had a lot of issues getting the proper diagnosis and understanding what was actually happening to them. And it actually took years for them to figure out what that was. Did you have a similar experience? Exactly. It took me 13 years post-injury to figure out. And there's been many articles and many books written about how the medical community especially doesn't take females seriously and thinks a lot of it's emotional. I had neurologists telling me if I felt so dizzy, I should carry rocks in my pocket so I can feel more stable. And I can't actually say what I said in response because you'd have to bleep it out. Yeah. So I'll start at the, the top. So I took a solo trip to Australia. I was going hiking. I signed up with a local group once I was on the ground in Australia to do like a five-day hike. And while I was on that hike, I fell. I was crossing like a stream that was very like mossy and slippery. And I fell. And then just the way I hit and then tumbled there was like a little waterfall connected to it. So the, I don't actually remember feet or meters wise, but I would say I probably fell somewhere between two and five feet down the waterfall. So I got pretty banged up and cuts and scrapes and stuff, but I did, I definitely lost consciousness a couple of seconds. And then the next couple of days, at least what I understand from my own experience and what I've read is brain injuries can be very insidious. So the next couple of days, I just was like drunk. I didn't get, I remember I was a freelancer at the time and I remember living in the United States with employees, employer-sponsored healthcare. I remember because I was a freelancer, I was buying my own healthcare. And then I remember buying like an extra package to be like protective for myself if I'm, when I'm out of the U.S., and I remember it said, if you need to be medevaced out, it was $250,000 by helicopter. And I remember saying to myself, okay, we will never get medevaced out. We have to make sure we're not medevaced out. And I'm not, I don't know now, um, almost 20 years later, if I should have been. I, again, like arguing with reality is exhausting. So it is what it is. But I do remember the moment of, Coming to and having two tourists be like, do you want us to get you medical attention? And basically the moment of asking. And I remember seeing in my head that piece of paper that said that. And I was like, no, I'm good. Denied myself medical attention. And then spent a couple more days in the outback. We're up in far north Queensland, if anybody knows Australia. And didn't go on the remaining hike, stayed at base camp and was just feeling like, I just felt drunk. I just felt really woozy, really drunk, very like, if you've ever taken cold medicine and you feel like you're in that fog and just felt very foggy, eventually got back to Sydney and I can only imagine what I looked like. I think I looked like a pretty beaten up like dish rag. Like I, my clothes were shredded, my I still had mud and blood. There's no, there's no shower in the outback. So I'm still wearing a lot of the outer garments that got banged up. And I remember walking into the lobby of the hotel that I was staying at and another tourist was like, 
can someone get this woman medical attention? I didn't even realize how bad I looked. And again, same thing. I denied because I was like, I can't afford this. I'm fine. Left two days later to come back to the States. And then when I got back into the States is when I went to the doctor. They were just like, okay, you had a concussion. You got concussed and it can, it can feel pretty crummy for a while. And you'll eventually, you'll get better. And that was pretty much it. Except I wasn't getting better. I was getting worse. I was, I was having such challenges. I remember distinctively being in a restaurant that had curtains that were very long, white, flowy curtains that were moving because the window was open. And I remember I got to get out of here. Like I was so dizzy because of the constant, basically the walls were vibrating because of the level of the flow, the wind against the curtains. And I remember standing up to start to say, I got to go. And like, lunch hadn't even been served. I was with a couple of colleagues and I fell over and they were like, what's wrong with you? Meaning, cause I wasn't, no one was drinking. It was a lunch meeting. And I was like, I don't know. And then of course I laugh at myself now because I just went back to the office. Like I didn't go home. I was like, I'm just going to go back to the office. And I just, I have so much compassion for that girl today who just didn't know, just didn't know what to do. And just lots of episodes like that, where vestibule walking down a, a very bright white hallway and being very distorted and then having to hold the wall and having a senior leader come by me and being like griffin were you drinking at lunch and not even slowing down to hear the response just like throwing out like a snide comment at me and then i'm like oh my god people are thinking i'm drinking on the job when i'm not what's happening and then just again going to lots of different doctors various practitioners, specialists for cranial sacral and massage and chiropractic for everyone to try to help me figure out what was wrong. And no one was coming up with an answer. And again, it took, I think it was around 13 years later, because of my day job, I had a friend who worked at Sports Illustrated. And as we know, football players get head injuries a lot. And he tipped me off to a doctor in Chicago who apparently did some work for the Chicago Bills and various sports stars and various sports players who had a traumatic brain injury. And he was like, I can make a call for you. I don't know how long the wait will be, but maybe you can go see him. And it took about, it took about three months, even with connections to get into him. I flew to Chicago. At that point, I had somewhere between 10 and 13 years of data and films and MRIs. And I sent that all to him in advance. And I walked into his office and he said, I know what it is. And I'm going to spend the next three days proving it. And I just burst into tears because it was the first time someone was like, I got you. I know what this is. And it didn't matter what he told me at that point. It was just the fact of like, it was almost like very like, sacred, like someone is witnessing and telling you for the first time, I know what this is. I can tell you, I can give it a name. And once it has a name, you then know, at least for me, I then knew where to focus and where to go and what to continue to, to do to heal. And, and again, prior to that, like lights and environments. And if a colleague had a baritone voice or someone is making a point and pounding the conference room table or someone shaking their leg in a meeting or a, a fluorescent light in the conference room is flickering. All of these things could knock me to the floor. So on a regular basis, I'm working in New York City where sirens and the screeching of the subway brakes sometimes could be enough where my eyes and ear, everything is vibrating so much that I'm like knocked over from the sound. 
And again, people telling me it's all in my head. I would put mascara on in the morning, which for anyone who wears mascara, you tilt your head a little bit to get to the eyelashes. That alone, I would have to hold the counter so I couldn't, so bathroom counter so I wouldn't fall over. Yet continuing being told that it's just in my head. Oh, I mean, Jill, that's really powerful. How did you, looking back on it, how were you able to live and adapt and keep going without knowing for that long? I've heard people, I've talked to people on the show, it's, it's three years, it's five years. I've never heard somebody, 13 years, That's that you showed an incredible amount of resilience and grit and self-belief to keep pushing through it and keep trying and keep maintaining your career and your job. Like what kept you going through that? Yeah. Um, first, again, going back to employer-sponsored healthcare, if I didn't work, I didn't have health insurance. And if I don't have health insurance, I don't get well. So that became a non, it was a non-negotiable. I had to work. Now, could I have found a different job? Probably, but now I have a pre-existing condition. So are they going to care if I go to a new healthcare company? Again, I didn't know these things, but I was almost afraid to signal to find out because if I talk to a lawyer right now, there's a record and now, it was all like solving things in my head that just going, okay, failure is not an option. There will be no failure. You will figure this out. So I definitely put definitely a lot of resilience, a lot of resourceful, definitely grit. It also meant the times that I, I just had to tap into a very spiritual level of faith of this has been brought to me. This is my reality. So I'm going to do something with it. I'm not just going to sit here and wither. I'm going to fight whatever that looks like for myself. So my, my prayer every day to myself is, or like the mantra to myself in my meditation was like, let me take the necessary actions today to be one step closer to clarity, to be one step closer to healing. Because I knew that I couldn't figure it out overnight. And I knew that it was going to be like a process of figuring out different triggers and signals and starting to get better. But I also knew that I had to have a forward momentum. Otherwise, you, I'd feel rudderless. So this idea of let every day, let me who do I need to meet? What's the conversation I need to have? Who's going to introduce me to who? Who's going to tip me off? What's the next doctor to talk to? What's the next New England Journal of Medicine article I can read? What do I need to know? And what I started to put together is one is two things. One, I had a neurologist tell me that, that I was going to need to avoid planes, trains, automobiles. And I was like, what am I in a freaking John Candy movie? Like I live on an island called Manhattan. How do I avoid planes, trains, and automobiles and boats. Like it's an island. <laughs> you need to get around. And I just remember there was something in that moment where I was done. I was like, I am done on letting other people tell me how my life is going to go. So thank you for sharing, but we are done. And he was still talking and I stood up and I was like, I'm done. And my mom had come with me to that because she wanted to hear and whatever. And I remember her being like, honey, the doctor is still talking. And I was like, then you can listen and I'll meet you in the lobby. But I remember looking at him and leaning over and being like, you are not my God and you don't get to tell me how my life is going to play out. And I like woman of entrances and exits and stormed out very dramatically because 
again, it just, I think he meant well, but I think his delivery was far away from my liking. And at the same time, we have to understand that when we are in positions of influence, our words can have a lot of power over people. And I thank God that I was strong enough to be like, you don't get to write my story, dude. I write my story, step aside. And then had so much anger towards him that became the fuel. So today I think about that neurologist and thank God for him because had he not been a jerk, who knows? It might've taken me even longer before I got the spark to be like, uh-uh, game over. I'm in charge now. All of you don't know. You don't know me. And since you have nothing to say, then I'm going to start figuring this out. And that just then became a process of, I started to write down everything. I kept a journal. I would grade my days on good or bad, like on a scale of one to 10 and start making notice. And I started to notice that certain food would take me above or below my baseline. And food, that would be really confusing because it would be like, and I'm not saying this is for everyone. This is for me, for my body, an apple or almonds. And most nutritionists would tell you those are super healthy. But for me, they had a particular amino acid in them called tyramine, which can trigger vertigo and migraines. And then it would take me above my baseline. So I was spending so much of my life running around on a plane and jumping into airports where what was I doing all the time? I was grabbing the shrink-wrapped apple in the airport because it was easy and to-go food. And I was grabbing the pack of almonds and jumping on a plane, not realizing that those two foods were causing more havoc on my ability to reduce the inflammation in my head and reduce what the symptoms and vestibular impact that I was having. So I started to study functional medicine and functional nutrition, which is the root cause resolution where anatomy, physiology meets food. And by food, we mean everything from what we put in our mouths to mold and toxins, to lighting, to meditation, to environment. Like how are you nourishing yourself? And started to really isolate what was causing it. And I don't, today I don't have a perfect understanding. There are times where I'll be like, for the last couple of days, I've been really dizzy and I don't know why. And I'm trying to figure out what did I do? But for years, I'd be so hard on myself. Like you triggered it again, Jill. You gotta be smarter. You gotta be faster. You gotta be focused. And realizing that just sometimes it's gonna trigger because environment and life. And that became my path. And as I started to study the brain and food and the impact on the brain, I started to learn about cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychology. And that started to make me feel a lot better because I can choose my thoughts. And then those thoughts give me a feeling. And then I take action from that feeling. And suddenly I'm creating a different result for myself than coming from a negative thought. And then I sort of apply that back into my day job. And that's really where things also changed. It was like the next major shift where I was going from like, you know, doing a decent job, but now I'm really excelling. Now I'm getting promoted. Now my team is performing well. Now everyone's saying they want to work on my team. People are saying, hey, can I sit on the couch in your office and just work in this environment today? People are wanting to be around me. HR joking, like my peers are going to get mad because I'm poaching everyone. And I'm like, no, I'm not. They're coming to work for me. I'm not recruiting any of them. And it was like, clients were happy. Leadership was happy. We were performing and delivering. And the, the morale was different. 
So really understanding that's when I first got turned on again to the mindset and the coaching, which is, I got certified as through my own journey, but bringing that back into my day job and not necessarily having any desire to be a functional nutritionist or to be a coach. I was just doing it for myself and survival. And then suddenly the impact on those around me, people were experiencing shifts in their life too. Amazing. Did you have any friends, family, coworkers during this process who you could lean on and who believed that it wasn't just in your head that you were actually going through it? Or was it a lot of solo work? Somewhere in between. I think from a family standpoint, my parents, they're pretty big fans of mine and they know that, that I'll figure it out. I think they worried a lot, which I also didn't want to be around that energy because once I understood what that could create for me, their worry, like fear and worry are contagious. And if I'm around that, it then gets me stressed. So I also had to like, I love you, mom. I can't talk about this. I don't want to keep talking about this. I don't know that my friends definitely knew I had this. I don't know that they knew what I was really going through as in I didn't want to be the drag. I didn't want to be the, this is, I don't feel good. This is what's happening. Like I still, I was afraid of being voted off the island. If I'm the the pouty person, then, you know, I'm going to lose friends. So a lot of this was, again, I think people knew, but I don't think, I'd be surprised if they actually really knew what a day was like when I'm holding on to the wall to make sure that I don't fall over or and then trying to appear, quote, normal, whatever normal is, right? Trying to appear normal so that I'm a young woman in New York City who wants to go on a date and had a lot of thoughts around if I don't, if I don't represent in a certain way, no one's going to want to date me. So I had to work through a lot of those thoughts too until I was like, you should be so lucky to date me. <laughs> That's eventually where I got to and married to a wonderful man. So it all worked out okay. <laughs> I. So let's talk about, I see so much, I hope we can do more episodes because there's so much there that you can teach and we can learn from because, you know, the, you, the way you were so methodical, you started to break things down, you use your curiosity, you didn't let other people define your story and your limits and who you were, all of that, you just started to, to come together slowly and is that when you had your first aha moment with, I should be a career, I should be a strategist. I should go out on my own, look at this morale boosting, look at these performance levels that I'm generating from just being me and yeah. being here and putting in this work. Was, was that the light switch went off? It, it, I was starting to see that. And again, my experience in corporate for the most part, was excellent. Yeah, I've got some doozies of stories, and I'm sure we all do from our jobs. But for the most part, it helped make me into the excellent person I am today. So I, I wasn't running from corporate or from working. What I was realizing is that after a while is my work here was complete, that I felt that I, that my mission was bigger than what that environment can offer me. And I'm being called on an emotional level to do this work. And I look at the work that I do as a ministry and that I'm being, I need to step into that and that my mission needs me. And my mission is career well-being and employee wellness and understanding, having agency of self 
and how to work your mindset to create what it is that you want in your life. And yeah, I'm an award-winning strategist. So let's throw some of that in there too. So once we get clear on what it is that you want, you definitely want to tap into my strategic brain to figure out how to get there. So it started to become what's next here, meaning I could have rotated within the company or transferred to another division or whatever, but it really became, I think this part, and I had to mourn it too, by the way, because I love like advertising and media. I just loved it so much, but I also had to be like, okay, this part of my life is taking on a different shape now and it's time to go on. And I didn't know exactly what it was going to be or how it was going to look. I just said, okay, it's time. And in the first year or so as an entrepreneur on my own, I had more consulting work where I was being hired by brands to do strategy work, extra set of hands on the business, lead a team, get them through a challenge, helping certain clients navigate COVID in the, in the early start of the pandemic. But through all of that, the one-on-one -on -one coaching, the private coaching, meaning, yes, I, I would work in the team dynamics and helping teams succeed, but I get a lot of joy of helping a leader show up and find that moment of truth for them. It's like, what is the leader they want to be and what is it that they want to create for themselves and their team? And how do we get there? And that became so important to me that we're creating leaders who know how to manage their mind so that when they have a tough day, it's not trickling down to their teams. I know this is a big question, but I don't often get, at least not yet, to speak to somebody who's had the level of success and experience in corporate America that you've had. What do you think they're missing in corporate culture and in these companies that we're not seeing more people with a disability contributing and being seen as an untapped resource, right? An untapped talent pool. If we want to reduce it even to that, we have so much talent. We're being underutilized, underemployed, underappreciated as a group. What's missing in corporate America for them, for that connection to, to get made? That is a really powerful question. In my experience, I think first it comes from awareness where I hid my disability because it was easy. It's not apparent. It's invisible. If you hung out with me long enough, you probably noticed some things that were off or different. But if you were just in passing, I could fool you. Like I'm an Academy Award winning actress. And I was afraid that if you knew, you would look at me as a liability. This doesn't mean this is true. This is what my thoughts were, that you would look at me as a liability and therefore not take a chance on me. So I hit it a lot. That said, I do not recall in all my years of working, hearing or reading anything in an employee handbook about an invisible disability or a non-apparent disability, right? So if our leaders, our division heads don't know that colleague who's in the bathroom a lot has some digestive issue also chief colitis or Crohn's or has some issue that according to the American Disability Association, they're, they're, that is considered an invisible disability. If they don't know that someone who's having chronic migraines or MS or any of these other conditions that impact, depending on where you read, somewhere between 10 and 20% of Americans, if they're just going on 
visible awareness, like I don't blame them because how would they know? And if until you get made aware of it, now you're accountable. So I think it starts with making sure that in the ways of working the employee handbooks and lean leadership training, that we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and also understanding that disability needs to be part of that, whether it's visible or invisible. Now, the onus is on me, especially if it's invisible, to decide if I want to make it known publicly or at least to the proper paths, HR. And there were times in which if I felt like I had a boss who is an ally, I would let them know. And other bosses didn't know because I didn't, I felt like it would be used against me. But the onus is on me. So I can't assign blame if I haven't told people. But I also think that if you make it an environment where it feels safe to come forward and say, hey, light above my head by my cube has been flickering for two days and I'm afraid I'm going to have a seizure. Can we get that fixed? Versus it just being an annoyance, right? Or, hey, I'm, my desk is facing a window and I realize that's a benefit for so many people, but seeing the constant movement of cars coming down the street all the time is actually causing me a problem. Can we move the desk or can I move my seat? Whereas like, I felt at the time it'd be looked upon as unappreciative. We gave you a window seat. Isn't that the big coveted thing you want to sit near? And I appreciate that, but it doesn't always work for everyone. I needed to be at a wall that was solid. I needed to not be in direction of the main hallway in the elevator bank because I couldn't have constant movement coming past my eyes. Yet I often was in positions or sitting in positions where that. So I think it just comes down to we as individuals need to be able to speak and say what we need. And again, I have compassion for that younger me who was too afraid to do that. I don't actually think, I think that's changed. But today I think there is much more understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I do think that I had this been today, I would have felt safer about saying something than 20 years ago. So the onus is on me to say something, but the onus is also on the company to create an environment and educate its leaders to make sure that they know that bringing in diversity in all like in all ways that we can think about it is only going to overall improve the product and the business and the outputs so that we have a diverse solution. People need to, you need to see the benefit of that because a lot of people, that sounds intellectually true, but I think until it's proven and it, it has, it's starting to get there. I know Microsoft has a big disability inclusion there. They seem like they're doing a great job. They have these accessible controllers now for people with various disabilities. And so you see certain companies starting to lead the way, but it feels like it's great that they're turning the corner, but it's still at the beginning. Yeah. 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 And I think leadership so many, so I want to get into this really fascinating topic of micro quitting, mm -hmm. uh, which was a phenomenal episode on your career re refresh podcast. But let's talk a little bit about leadership. Like what is leadership to you? What does a good leader look like? And how do you help a leader become a better version of themselves? So I take leadership also through the lens of diversity and that I don't know that there's one type of leader, but I think 
the ingredients of a strong leader is someone that's really clear in their own personal strengths and what they're really good at. It's someone who knows their skills and knows when something burns them out and when it gives them energy, right? As employees, we can't always choose the kind of work we're doing. But if I know something burns me out, then I can think about my own time management and do it at a time where I'm not going to then have it impact the quality of the work or get cranky or short-sighted with my colleagues because I'm in a bad mood because I'm doing something that burns me out. I also then think it's about getting clear in your values and you can have workplace values and you can have personal values. And for instance, innovation is a workplace value of mine, but I don't necessarily need innovation in my personal life. It's okay if it's not in my personal life. Whereas as I define love needs to be in my personal life, but I don't know that I need love in corporate. I would probably translate that to community, connection, collaboration, teamwork. Getting clear in what you need personally in your values and what you need professionally in your values is also going to help you stand up and be a leader. And then I think you take these ideas of knowing your strengths, knowing your skills, knowing your values, and working with the people that you that report to you or the people that you're working with and help them define the same things. Because when everyone's operating towards what they're good at and we stop anxiously trying to fix what we're not good at, again, this doesn't mean that we're going to have a perfect world where we're always going to do the things that we're only good at. We need to do things sometimes and we need to fail. Fine. But we spent, I have a big opinion about performance reviews and I think they suck. And I think we spend too much time in what you need to do better versus really celebrating what you are doing well and how we can create experiences for you, for the company, the client in which you're leaning into what you're doing really well. And therefore you're shining more. And if you're doing it well, you're creating whatever the OKR, whatever the objective and key result is for what it is that we're trying to create, you're creating more of that. So I think when you're thinking about leadership at that, I think you need to have that. I look at that as like the personal leadership foundation, skills, values, beliefs, strengths, knowing what they are for yourself and helping your team get there too. And looking at team dynamics and how people can complementary work with each other to get to the end result. Then I look at a layer of what I would call is you got to release your own BS, right? Like you have to have a, a no asshole. I don't know if you need to bleep that out, but like a no asshole or no jerk policy, right? And that has to apply for yourself as much as how you are rooting that out in the organization culturally. It's inevitable that it'll happen, but if there's enough good culture, it'll keep those episodes and instances very small and very infrequent versus it spreading like a toxin through the entire culture. And I think as leaders, we're responsible for that. We've all know famous business people, and we've all probably worked in situations where someone utterly ruthless, but they were brilliant, so they were kept around. And I just say, does it have to be an either or? Can we find a way that you can be brilliant and we can help you not be so ruthless? Because again, it trickles down. Like when I see the work that I do with people privately and when they have a tough day and they tell me that they're sitting in the car before going back into the house because they don't want to bring that to their roommate or to their spouse or their kid. Like, again, when you're someone of influence in an organization, how you behave and what you say has an impact on people's lives. 
And I, I choose to believe in my heart of hearts that people don't mean it because it's not worth it for me to think about it any other way personally. But I don't think that people really realize that the way you spoke to someone or the way you treated someone, you're now impacting. Again, we all have agency. I can choose to think about things differently, but we're also human. If we have a tough exchange with our boss around something, even though I get to think about how I want to think about it, it might stick around. And now I'm sitting in the car in the driveway before getting back into the house. So I just think we need to, everybody's responsible for their own thoughts and actions, but if you're causing harm, you need to own that and clean that up. So that's the least the BS. And then I think you need to be really clear on the goals that you're trying to achieve personally, the goals the department or the company is trying to achieve, and then figure out how they're measurable. Because if they're not measurable, they're not goals, people. So we have to be able to measure them. So those are my three tiers of leadership. The first being this idea of a personal foundation of leadership for yourself, how you're helping your team do that, releasing your own BS, and then getting super clear on goals and actions. What is the result then that this team of people is going to come together and create. And when those things don't happen or they're not as effective, to me, that starts to break, things start to break down and we get into this really interesting concept of micro quitting. It's, oh, if the boss is, if the leader isn't saying anything, then why should I care? So I'm going to tune out and I'm going to stop and I'm going to just let this slide too. And, and so it starts to, spread and it starts to snowball and things start to happen. And before you, you're unhappy at your job, you're quitting your job, you start to coast through a lot of other things. So tell us a little bit for the people that haven't heard the episode, a little bit about how you started to think about this idea of micro quitting and how you tell the difference between what that is versus I'm just exhausted and I need a break today and I'm going to take the night off. <laughs> this is a fun question. So I look at micro quitting as quitting ahead of time. You didn't quit because you were exhausted. You gave it your all and you're like, you know what? I'm going to put this on the shelf and I'm quitting today or I'm quitting permanently, right? It's a micro quitting is a subtle self-sabotage. It's this idea like the big quit, the, the, the macro quit is, you know what? I don't feel like doing this anymore. I'm done. You're clear. You're done. You're looking for a new job. You're changing the behavior. You're doing the thing. The micro quit is like, everything sounds really logical. And that makes sense, Jill. Take it easy. Put your feet up. It's like that kind of idea that we start a diet or we start a food protocol or an exercise um, regimen and we say we're going to do something X amount of times a week. And within two days in, we haven't renegotiated. So life happens. And maybe I was supposed to work out tonight, but something came up and I can't. The micro quit is just saying, all right, I can't. The work that I would encourage you to do is say, okay, if I can't work out on Tuesday, let me look at this week. You know what? I'm going to change the day on Thursday and I'm going to make sure I work out on Thursday so that you're... You're not quitting, you're renegotiating so that you're still moving towards your goals. Because the idea of micro quitting is just making excuses because you want, as I was saying to you before, I have a mentor who says, you want a, a big life, you need, you need like 
little tough everyday goals that will get you that big life. So it's in that smaller actions that we're taking every day. And I look at it as, I call it my one by one. It's one behavior, one action, 1% better is what keeps you out of the micro quit. So we're not expecting you to leap tall buildings in a single bound and, you know, fix everything. But if every day you're striving for 1% better, you can do the math, right? After a month or so, you're going to have a significant incremental increase on what you're doing better. And again, the micro quit just comes from you're tired, you're lazy. I find that when we're in halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, it's really easy to go into the micro quit. Or, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. It's just one day. And one day isn't that big of a deal as long as you make up for it. And that's really what is the change in the mindset there. I think it's super interesting on a couple of levels, which is if we go back to your process, this incredible grit and determination that you showed in those 13 years before you knew what was happening, I'm sure you had your days just like you're a human being. We all did, but you didn't let that, you could have let you could have micro quit in so many ways over such an extended period of time, but you didn't. So were you renegotiating with yourself all the time? All the time. So that concept was already somewhat formulated in your head. Not consciously, but yes, because again, there's no hero. I have to be the hero. There's no, nobody's coming to fix this for me. I had evidence of that. Years of doctors basically patting me on the head and saying, okay, little woman, go home and rest up. No one's saving me. So I'm the hero I'm waiting for. And it just meant like, how do I want to live this life? And do I want to live this life in a micro quit where it's lazy, it's resentful? Why me? Why not me? Why not me? And having that and going, okay, so this is what I got. How am I going to play it out? How am I going to work within this? How am I going to challenge it? Oh, challenge it too much, too exhausted now, overdid it. Okay, I need a timeout tomorrow. Fine. I'll take the day. I'll take the pass. Okay. But in two days from now, I'm going to come back at it. And then just that constant, just that drive, that, that I guess for me, it was an internal fight where I need going down this way. This is not the end of my story. I think people can take, there's so much to take away from there because I, you read it. I haven't spoken to anybody exactly who said this, but you get that sense of it's a little bit more difficult when you're faced, say, I'll just take myself as an example, right? I didn't, I haven't felt this way in a long time, but it's so easy as somebody who's, I have these multiple physical disabilities, I could have quit and nobody would have necessarily thought less of me except myself mm-hmm. and my friend and mm-hmm. close family and friends. And I couldn't feel that. I'm going to take the easy road out because I can and why not? Mm-hmm. But I didn't. And there's been certain periods of time in my life where I sacrificed health for work. I sacrificed a lot of things for whatever goal was in front of me. But as I rebalance, 
it's those things seem worth it because they were part of the journey and I learned about myself and I discovered that my limits, whatever I thought they weren't my limits. Like I had to push beyond several layers before I found out what the hard stops actually were. Yeah. And in that process, it, it's like you said, even if it's 1%, you can still meet people where they're at. Somebody may have a chronic condition or a disability where maybe they've got one hour a day or one hour a week where they can give themselves to whatever it is they want to do, but give yourself for that hour, whatever, wherever that place is. Don't, don't let that define you completely and stop you. Yeah. And it's also the ambivalent, the ambivalence that I think can be really um, deadly and lead you towards the micro quit, right? Like this doesn't matter or I'll do it tomorrow or it's underperforming, knowing that you could do more, but someone is expecting less of me. So I'm just going to stay below the radar and make my day really easy. I'm not saying we need to be in the hustle and grind. I'm just saying within our own ability are we leaving anything up? Are we, I don't know that every single day you need to leave everything on the field. That's not what I'm saying either. But where are you folding it in? Where are you just like checking the boxes and not really doing it and not really showing up? That's, I think, the places where when we say you're cheating like the company or if you're doing work with somebody, sure, okay. so. You are cheating and one could call that stealing, right? As far as they're paying you a wage to do a job and you're micro quitting and not doing it. But I think the bigger part of it is that you really impact your own integrity and you really erode your own self-trust. Because if you don't even believe your word, then when you really do need to do something, it's going to take that much more to get the fire under you to do something because you've always given yourself the out and the micro quit. So again, there's no hard and fast line. A micro quit for one is a win for somebody else. We're not saying there's a one size that it needs to be. We're just saying for you, where are you giving up ahead of time? Where are you taking the easy way out? And there are some times where I will fully join you in the easy way out. But when it comes to the big things, the things that matter, I know... It's just that thing. It's like taking the easy way out is going to make my life harder in other ways. And if you do, if you find yourself in a position where you've let those things accumulate and you said it's harder to bring that fire back, can you give us some actionable steps to bring yourself back, to start to bring yourself back? So first, I think you need to notice your sneaky little thoughts, the little buggers that they are. And it's probably things like, you know what? I can't deal. I can't get this done today. You know what? I, I just, I can't handle this down. You know what? I, I, if I had more help, I could get this done. Or I'm so busy. I don't, I, I can't do this. It's like we've fallen into this like busy Olympics. Like there are no cash and prizes for being busy. So why do you want to be busy? I want to be productive. I want to be creating value. I don't need to be busy. So first I would say, watch the sneaky little thoughts. Then you got to be honest with yourself. Is this a quit? Is it a permanent quit? Is it a micro quit? If you're not feeling well, yeah, let's pause for the day and, and be clear. Also be clear 
if you really are a hard, firm no, if you just don't want to do it, it's okay. Don't just be honest with yourself. Don't be in the, that half place. That's going to lead you to a level of decision fatigue where you're like, man, out and you think you've made a decision, but you really haven't. You just have a lot of thoughts because a decision is a committed thought with a committed action. Otherwise, you're just thinking you're going to do things and then you're constantly like renegotiating the decision. I would also check yourself as, have you done this before? Is this a pattern for you? When things get hard, do you start to check out? And other ways that it, you can check out and microquit is like when I've had a hard day, I go into overconsumption. So whether that's social media, alcohol, recreational drugs, food, shopping, scrolling the internet, like whatever your overconsumption is. If you're in overconsumption, it's usually because you're trying not to feel something or you're trying to avoid feeling something about a certain way about something. And if you're like, I don't know what that is, stop your overconsumption and you'll know pretty quickly (laughs) because it'll be all there for you. Get clear if you want to recommit. And then you want the understanding that at times you're going to feel overwhelmed and that's okay. We think sometimes that if we feel overwhelmed or uncomfortable that something's wrong. And there's no like off ramp for the human experience. Like discomfort, overwhelm are just part of the package. They're going to be there. So doesn't mean we need to stop. It just means we have to coach ourselves and ask ourselves, okay, what am I doing here? Is this thought true? The best way when you have these thoughts is if you ask yourself if the thought is true and then ask yourself if you can prove it. Because you're going to say, of course it's true. This is what's happening. And then I want you to prove it. Prove that thought is true. And I'm going to bet that at that point, you're not going to be able to prove that it's true. And therefore we know it's just your crummy little thought self-sabotaging you. And then, like I said earlier, noticing when you're in halt, right? If you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, take the pass today. You're angry, you're lonely, you had a really hard day at work, but don't take the pass unconsciously. Say, I'm not going to do this today, but then it's the renegotiation, but I'm going to take this off this weekend. That's the difference between the full quit or the micro quit. The micro quit is this sneaky. I'm just not going to do it today, but we don't actually make up for the lost win or the lost time or whatever it is that we're trying to create. You are an incredible human being. Uh, We've taken up a lot of your time. I really appreciate (laughs) it. I could talk to you for hours. Last two things. Is there anything that I've missed in this podcast that you feel is important to talk about? Maybe the, the horse paint? The painting of the horse or something else that we haven't gotten to that you want to say? Um, yeah, the horse is a really, it's a really impactful experience for me. It was suggested to me to try equine therapy because I had a lot of fear of falling again. And I lived alone and it just at times would really paralyze me or get me afraid of like things that I would do or just feel like a low level of anxiety all the time. So it was suggested that I try equine therapy. And I didn't really understand it. I would say if anyone just Googles the American Psychology Association and looks up um, equine therapy, there's a ton there. And, and basically that 
various branches of the U.S. military use equine therapy with soldiers coming back from experiences they've had. And there's a lot of benefit there. And where we started off in this conversation, I love animals. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm willing to try this. And we are where I'm at the, I'm at the horse farm. It's rescue horses. So it's also extra special to my heart. And the therapist puts me in the center of the ring and hands me a carrot and says, don't move. And this ring, I'm so bad with spatial things, but I don't know, maybe it's like a half a football field. Like it's a big ring. And there's, I don't know, 50 or more horses milling around of all different sizes, big work horses to Clydesdale to like race horses that are all just doing their horsey things and <laughs> working around. And uh, it was such an amazing experience to have the understanding of how the brain works and then watch how the body worked. And she then jumps out, the therapist jumps out of the ring and makes some like calls to the horses and starts stirring them up. And I could feel my body literally shaking. Like I thought I was going to lose my bowels because they're running past me now, like rushing past me. And they're not hitting me, but just their wind of their power of this thousand pound animal coming by me. And I'm sitting there and I'm holding the dang carrot and I'm, I'm literally shaking. I see a horse like all the way at the other end of the ring and it starts running. And I don't really, again, I'm not a, I've horse back ridden many a times, but I'm not a professional. So I don't exactly know, was it a trot or a canter, right? It was fast. It's coming at me. Therapist on the side, Missy over there being like, don't move. And I'm like, my God, sweet baby Jesus, what is happening? And I'm shaking and I'm scared. And I'm thinking that it's going to nail me. I'm going to ricochet. There's a tree over there. I'm going to smash against the tree. All of this. Did she not understand? Did she not hear? Still running at me. She's yelling, don't move. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. And then it hits me. In this moment, I am safe. When I future trip, when I worry and think of all the things in the future that could happen to me, I'm in fear. And seconds away of a horse looking at me is still the future. It is not now. But in this moment, I am safe. And when I stay in this moment, I'm not afraid. And that it like clicked to me what she was doing. And then of course the horse gets to me. He like skids, stops, starts licking me, munching on my collar, looking for the carrot. Once again, Jill's crying because she gets the impact of like in the present, there is no fear. And that's really what I've worked with leaders on is finding that fearless moment for yourself so that you understand when you are present, there is no fear so that you can then take the next right action for whatever it is, personally or professionally, that you want to achieve. And that's why there's that big, gorgeous, his name is Illuminari. That is not the horse that I met on Eastern Long Island right now. And there's a horse farm nearby and that's, he's from the horse farm. That's beautiful. That's an amazing yeah. story. It's a great, it's a great experience. It was like crazy experience, but I was like, what is happening? <laughs> and amazing that you had the realization just as the horse was approaching you. It's great. Yeah. 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 Of getting it. Of getting it. Yeah. So how can people connect to you? How can people listen to the podcast? How can people reach out and work with you? Ah, thank you. That's wonderful. I have a podcast called The Career Refresh with Jill Griffin. You can find that on all platforms, all streaming platforms. 
You can also go to jillgriffincoaching.com. I work with people one-on-one. I also have a group launching shortly in which I do group work with people around their strengths and their values and their skills and help them create the results that they want in their lives. So you can also find me on Instagram. It's Jill Griffin official. You can chat with me there. There's plenty of places that you can find me. And I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you're thinking after listening to this podcast too. I'd love to chat. Absolutely. This, I'm really, I'm so happy we connected. I really enjoyed this episode. You are an, inc- like I said, you're incredible, but in, in a way that you're approachable to with all the success and your mind and your openness and your willingness to share. I just think there's a, I hope people reach out to you, work with you. I'm looking forward to keeping the connection going and just thank you so much for the time and the generosity and the amazing insights. Thank you so much, Gustavo. This has been amazing and what a treat to get to talk to you today.